Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, I'll have a conversation with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and they'll talk about why reforming the state's fees and fines is among the Institute's top priorities this legislative session. And also, it's known as Georgia's first body positive fitness center. Owner Abby Griffith will share her own weight loss struggle as the inspiration behind the center. And in just a moment, what happened yesterday with the FAA system that caused an outage? Well, we'll find out. Important conversations, but we'll begin with this, and that is the weather. At the time of this broadcast, a severe line of storms is expected to move into metro Atlanta this afternoon. The National Weather Service has also issued a wind advisory until 11 p.m. tonight. Carmen Hernandez is a meteorologist in Peachtree City. The main threats at this time are damaging wind gusts up to 60 miles per hour, which could give the potential to bring down trees and power lines. And we should note Carmen Hernandez is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. Now, we do know that Fulton County Schools has canceled all after-school activities because of the severe weather threat. And forecasters add snow could fall in North Georgia starting tomorrow through next week. As far as Atlanta, don't get excited yet. You can maybe plan on for a light dusting throughout the area. The other big news today is actually sports related. There will be a NFL playoff game played at Mercedes-Benz after all. Now, it won't be the Falcons, but per the statement from the league, the NFL owners approved a resolution last week to potentially adjust the AFC postseason, which included playing a conference championship game at a neutral site. Now, this was because due to the Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati Bengals game, which the NFL initially postponed January 2nd, this was after Bills safety DeMar Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest on the field. And some very good news, the Bills announced yesterday that Hamlin has been discharged from a Buffalo hospital and will now continue his rehabilitation at a home with the team. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was sworn in for the second time today. To the best of my ability. To the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the state of Georgia. And afterwards, after being sworn in, Governor Kemp talked about his commitment to addressing statewide issues both expected and unexpected. And while a lot has changed, and once-in-a-lifetime events have tested all of us, my commitment to the people of this state has not wavered. We may disagree on policy or politics. We may not see eye to eye on important issues facing our state. There may be another pandemic, another contentious election, or another national disaster, natural disaster. But my promise to you today remains the same that it was then. If tomorrow morning God sends us another struggle, I will roll up my sleeves and go to work. And speaking of the governor, Kemp says this year's budget request will include money for more workforce housing. Now, he previewed that proposal at yesterday's Eggs and Issues Breakfast, hosted by the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, as we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. The breakfast attracts throngs of lawmakers, lobbyists, business people, and corporate execs. Speaker after speaker said one thing they're worried about, attracting talent to fill new jobs and the lack of affordable housing for them. And listen, I have been a local control governor 
but you can't have our commitment to help and create jobs in your community, but then not have places to live. Kemp says he wants a state-local partnership to tackle the problem and nodded at passing legislation to curb local zoning powers that block certain new housing. Of course, many factors shape high housing costs. What exactly Kemp's proposing will become more clear in the coming days. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And finally, what exactly happened... The FAA is blaming a corrupted database file for Wednesday's nationwide airline shutdown. It temporarily grounded 5,400 flights and forced a cancellation of more than thousands of other, according to FlightAware.com. It's not being called a cyber attack, but the investigation is ongoing. Question is, how could one, quote, damaged file have the strength to shut down the airline industry nationwide? Well, I don't know, but I'm going to ask Henry Hardefeld. He is here to break down what caused the breakdown. He is truly an airline and travel industry analyst and expert. And Henry, welcome. It's been a long time. Well, hello, and thank you for having me, Rose. Listen, let's begin here first for our listeners. We need to explain the system we're talking about. Now, it's called the Notice to Air Mission System or NOTAM or NOTAM. I don't know how you say it, but what is this NOTAM. system? NOTAM. Okay. It's what? pronounced NOTAM. NOTAM. And okay. what it does... What it does is it provides safety information to pilots uh, for their flights, uh, information about, uh, for example, potential obstacles uh, or safety challenges that may exist uh, in and around the airports they're flying and potentially en route. So is this program, is there a central place where this program is housed or this system Yes, yeah, so it's it's housed with the FAA, and they do have a backup data center, uh, as many organizations do, and they have a redundant system. The problem began Tuesday afternoon, around 3.30 Eastern time, I'm told, uh, and it, the system continued to function until overnight, uh, and that's when apparently they were trying to do some work and the backup system failed. That's when that corrupted file was discovered. Or I should say it was the corrupted file that was the cause, and that was discovered yesterday morning. So just to be clear, there is a backup program in a sense, but that back backup program failed while they were trying to work on the primary program? Correct. There was something that did not work in their business continuity efforts uh, uh, that should have. There should not have been a failure like this. Uh, you have redundant systems in technology uh, so that critical systems never go down. And clearly what we need to understand from the FAA is why did this happen? Why didn't the backup system kick in the way it should? Uh, uh, and what steps are they going to take to make sure this doesn't happen again? And to be clear, as far as we know, authorities say this is not a cyber attack, but this does point to possible vulnerabilities. Correct, Rose. It Obviously, it shows that the uh, FAA lacks the right kind of backup, that somehow something didn't work. And what we need to understand is what tripped up the system. Now, I want to be fair to the FAA. Mm -hmm. Technology is not always easy. I also want uh, people to understand that the FAA takes safety seriously, but it has been perennially underfunded when it comes to budget time. And it doesn't help that right now there is no uh, administrator over the FAA. So, uh, uh, what happened yesterday may not have been a cyber attack, but it does reveal that the agency's technology systems uh, are uh, fallible. And it comes a week after uh, we had an air traffic control system outage in South Florida mm -hmm. that grounded a lot of flights in and out of cities such as Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami. Well, and if, if Congress wants some answers here, then are you saying that perhaps they need to look within because they fund this agency, correct? Correct. In part, the responsibility lies on Congress to make sure the FAA gets the funding it needs. And obviously, a lot of the responsibility is at the FAA. Are they investing money in the technology systems as they need to? And, we, you know, we are on the outside. We mm -hmm. don't know the answers here, but we deserve those answers. Henry, do you are, I guess may have a fair question, are you aware of other nations that have a better system than the one we have? Because we haven't heard of these type of, of issues before, like this, that, were, that weren't weather-related. 
Right. And and uh, it to your point, it seems that elsewhere we don't have these same kind of catastrophic failures. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, again, I don't want to throw the FAA under the bus mm-hmm. or the airplane, as it may be, but uh, there are clearly some things that are perhaps not being done as effectively at the FAA as maybe uh, uh, occurring elsewhere. And look, you know, the, these safety organizations uh, do share information. They do their best to share best practices. And the FAA does do a very good job in helping to maintain uh, the, one of the safest uh, airline and aviation environments in the world. So it's not that the FAA is asleep at the wheel, mm-hmm. but perhaps they just need another cup of coffee. There has, there has been also some criticism about how long it took to notify the public um, and some say even notify airports and airlines. What do you know about all of this and the time well, in between? Yeah, no, no, no. That's a good point. I mean, you know, look, it's not up to the FAA to notify the public. Uh, uh, it's up to individual airlines to notify their travelers. And so the question is, was the FAA providing information in as timely a manner as airlines deserved? And, you know, you are sitting in the same city as the headquarters and primary hub of one of the world's largest airlines, Delta mm-hmm. Airlines. Uh, uh, and Delta has invested a lot in its technology system and has a way to get its, some of its own notices to, for, to air missions, uh, which is good, but it still relies on the FAA extensively. Um, uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, do airlines, were airlines getting the information they needed to inform the public? Were they getting the information they needed to inform their employees? I heard yesterday from employees at one of the big three airlines that their pilots were being told about the ground stop, but their flight attendants were not. So the pilots, <clears throat> pardon me, the pilots were not showing up at the airports because they were told, stay at home or stay at your hotel. There's you know, nothing is flying. The poor flight attendants are showing up saying, we're ready to go and finding out at the airport that they're going nowhere. Listen, we all know about what happened with Southwest Airlines this past holiday. And listen, that's not a good look considering what just happened yesterday, too. Uh, what reassurances, though, and, and who to from whom should they come from when we talk about reassuring travelers that, listen, we want you to maintain our trust here? Is it a combination of the FAA, Congress, all the airlines? You know, you don't want to lay blame at anybody, but you also have to, you know, reassure the, the community, the public, that one, if something like this happens again, we got you, we'll let you know. And two, we don't want this to happen again. Right. Look, uh, you know, this has been a winter of air travel discontent so far, uh, on top of a summer that we just had of a lot of problems and a lot of problems in 2021. We, the traveling public, uh, as well as the taxpayers, deserve a much better job. Now, it's up to the airlines to create confidence in traveling. Uh, uh, And so Southwest Airlines certainly has a lot of work to do. But in this case, the FAA has had a series of system failures that are undermining the public's trust uh, or risk undermining the public's trust in air travel. And that cannot happen. So I'm hoping that the FAA will be transparent and timely in sharing the information it has. I'm not so sure I want the FAA engaging in a PR or advertising campaign to make people feel confident. Honestly, I don't know if they do a good job of it, but I do think it is important for airlines, uh, and maybe it's their trade group, Airlines for America, to help reinstill trust. When we walk into an airport, we should look forward to the journey. We should not be focusing or have to think like a pilot uh, or an operations person if we're a passenger. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we walk into these airports uh, with feelings of impending doom. What is going to go wrong? That's a terrible way to start or end a trip. Airline and travel industry analyst and expert Henry Hardevelt, thank you so much for taking time. Our listeners really, really appreciate you breaking down what caused the breakdown. Thank you. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As lawmakers get back to work this week at the state capitol for the 2023 Georgia legislative session, well, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, also known as GBPI, is releasing its annual list of policy priorities that it tracks during the session. And one of the spotlighted priorities this year is creating a fair criminal legal system, which involves increasing safeguards against unpayable fines and fees. And this is also the focus of the organization's new report called Regressive Revenue Perpetuates Poverty, Why Georgia's Fines and Fees Need Immediate Reform. Well, join me now to talk about all of this is GBPI's new president and CEO, Stacey Fox. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rose. How are you today? Doing all right. How are you? Now, you didn't have to travel this week, did you? <laughs> Yesterday or Tuesday? <laughs> um, tomorrow, but uh, Henry assured me that I should be able to get where I need to go tomorrow. <laughs> uh, let's begin here because we just played a little bit of clip from uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and talking about his commitment in terms of uh, leading the state uh, for all Georgians. As you got a chance to hear it, listen to him. Uh, what pops out to you? What do you hope is also a part of this second term for him? Yeah, Rose, I definitely did listen into the inauguration this morning. You know, things are a little bit different this year. We don't have a state of the state today, but got to hear the inauguration. I'll hear again from the governor in a couple of weeks, and we'll get the governor's budget tomorrow. You know, I think a couple of things popped out to me. I, I think the thing that felt the most discordant to me was the governor's uh, reiteration of creating good paying jobs in Georgia. Mm -hmm. You know, Georgia has um, the lowest minimum wage in the country, Georgia and Wyoming at, you know, 515 an hour. And, um, you know, I think at GBPI, we really want the state to be focused on putting people over profits, Mm -hmm. you know, people over corporations. And, you know, that's really where a study like Ray has released in his report on fines and fees comes into play. And for a state that talks about, you know, we're the best state to do business with and you want to attract, you know, solid workers and if housing is an issue, you know, but at the end of the day, it is about whether or not people can afford the better quality housing. Can people afford to commute? So you're saying that's great. You want to attract more people, but we got to make sure folks are being paid a fair and and equitable wage or, or salary here. That's right, Rose. I, I think, you know, it's great for us to lift up that that we're for the ninth year in a row, the best place to do business. But, you know, are we the best place for workers in the country? You know, and I think that the legislature really needs to be focused on policies that lift up all Georgians. And, you know, some are these, some are small, common sense, easy solutions, mm-hmm. and some are harder to tackle and more complicated. But listen, that's why they ran for office. And, that's why they're going to be under the dome for the next few weeks. So, I, you know, we're really looking to each of them on all sides of the aisle um, to put forth some solutions. You know, something like uh, raising the tobacco tax mm-hmm. in Georgia. You know, we have one of the lower taxes in the country and we're only charging 37 cents per pack of cigarettes. And the national average is $1.91. And we know that Raising tobacco taxes over a dollar is also a deterrent to smoking. So there's some health benefits to this tax change, which also could raise about $700 million for the state. So, you know, lots to be done. And we're certainly optimistic seeing some of the things that are um, catching some steam early on. And I, I think in New York, it's well over $4. I could be wrong in terms of that tobacco tax. We've talked about that on this program so many times. And then when you look at then the money that's needed for all those health related issues that come from tobacco, people I've heard on this program say therein lies the imbalance as well. Um, right. For compounding folk- issues like fines and fees, like, you know, I think to me, it's, uh, you know, these minor offenses, like, you know, we're talking about smoking a cigarette. I mean, I know it's not like a traffic stop, but mm-hmm. something as minor as a traffic stop, you know, that leads to fines and fees that then become unpayable and tethers people to this 
you know, racist criminal justice system that we have in Georgia. Let's, um, and we're going to get more into that too when we talk about that. I do want folks who are not familiar with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and often you all are referred to as a left-leaning institution. Let's just be clear about that. That's how you all are often referred to. What, for folks not familiar, what is your overall mission here? Well, thanks for asking, Rose. I, I agree. A lot of people don't know what we do. And I think what we do at GBPI is um, really special and unique. Nobody else is doing what we do. And, I, you know, I don't really care about the labels people want to call it. You know, I think we're people centered. You know, that's left, right or upside down. Right. I think the work that we do is focusing on lifting up all Georgians through policy solutions so that every Georgian, you know, regardless of where you live or your bank account balance or your, the color of your skin has an opportunity to thrive economically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we believe that where you put your money reflects your values. And so that's why we watch how the state raises and spends every single dollar. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to get to these priorities, but I think it's important also for listeners to understand how your organization comes up with the list of priorities. There are so many issues that is tied to how we all live in this state. I like to call them our quality of life issues, and there are so many tentacles tied to that. How do you all prioritize what you want to talk about, what you want to list in your report? That's such a good question, Rose. There are lots of issues that we're not tackling that I wish we could, but a lot of that has to do with funding, you know, and the, the money that we're able to raise to fund the organization to pay the staff. You know, we have a brilliant team, but also we want to look at where the state's spending the majority of its dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, the majority of the state's spending is around healthcare and education. And so we want to make sure we're focused there. Um, so we're following a little bit of the spending pie, if you will, um, and also looking at the overall budget and tax code, but also intersectionality issues like immigration mm -hmm. um, and safety net programs and workers' rights. Um, but, you know, with there are, and there are lots of groups talking about housing and transportation and climate. And um, I, I would love for us to be tackling those, too, but uh, just not yet. Listen, it was interesting to me because at the top of this list, you all talked about, OK, here we go. Promote state government transparency, number one on the list of priorities. Let's talk about that. What are you all yeah, wanting to see? Those. What are you all wanting <laughs> to see that you're not seeing or that we're not seeing? Yeah, well, none of us are seeing it. You know, and Georgia ranks pretty low on our transparency. I mean, what happens under the dome? You know, a lot of things are treated like trade secrets and um, folks don't know what goes on behind these tax credits that corporations are giving or film tax credit business transactions that go on. Um, and we also see that legislators, you know, don't always follow the rules when they're under the dome. They'll suspend the rules and um, to not attach a fiscal note so we don't really have to talk about the money associated with what they want to do. Um, and the other thing I think that's most important to us, Rose, is we want the state to be really looking at not just spitting out numbers, but mm -hmm. disaggregating the data to look at those that are being most harmed, whether it's racially or, or, or um a disability status, language preference, you know, all of those things, because it's not just about the number of people served, right? It's also about who's not served and what's getting in the way. What are those barriers to those services? And so we really want to see this. And this is a new priority for us, Rose, mm -hmm. but yeah. we want to see the state talk, look more at itself and be more transparent with the rest of the state about what's going on. So this is going beyond just uh, some basic data and information that you think folks should have, but the General Assembly would have to possibly step in to, to make that law, right? They would. And lots of other states do that. You know, I mean, we hear them called sunshine laws all over the country. Mm -hmm. We don't have them here in Georgia. And I think if we want to be a great place to work and live and thrive, and we've got to be willing to, you know, pull back the curtains and, and deal with the things that may be uncomfortable. And the open records request system. And as a journalist, I can tell you, you don't always <laughs> get what you want. You're, you're saying that needs to be because it's not enough. I mean, it's I, not. I, enough. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Rose, it's expensive. It's lengthy. Um, you don't always get all of the data. You know, I mean, that is what our brilliant team does at GBPI all every day is they're chasing the data that um, the state really should be creating better access to. I want to shift now and talk about this creating a fair criminal legal system. 
And, and you all talk about this in terms of the, the, that new report. And you say, look, Georgia's fines and fees need immediate reform. Let's educate our listeners. What specifically are you talking about here? Well, Rose, you know, I mean, you've talked about this. I mean, Georgia has, you know, the highest population in the world, uh, you know, of um, residents that are uh, tethered somehow to our criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. And I think this uh, snowballing of fines and fees is a criminalization of poverty in Georgia. And it's time that we really look at this, you know, um, the in Ray's report where he talks about, Mm -hmm. you know, that. 74 municipalities across the state uh, are over-reliant at at what is defined as high and abusive um, reliance on fines and fees um, to the tune of over 10% of their revenue is coming in from fines and fees um, for people who can't pay them. And when you can't pay one fee, then you get a fine, Mm -hmm. you know, or you get arrested and there's 12 other charges that get levied at you or you have to go to jail and you have to pay to make a phone call you know all of these and then you can't get your driver's license back you know all of these things really are not doing best by georgians and i think you know there's some good work going on in the state but it needs to be happening statewide and are we talking about low level offenses or citations and you're not talking about totally felonies yes and and so you know because in that clip you know Governor Kemp always talks about, you know, local control and and how he doesn't want to be a governor that comes in and tells folks, you know, how to do what they do on their own local governments. So what is the compromise here? Would you like to see the General Assembly then come in and and pass some broad legislations that can apply to every corner of the state here? And how likely do you think that could happen, Stacey? Mm. Well, Rose, I'm a Southerner. (laughs) You know, things take time. You know, and we're here for the the marathon, not the sprint. I know it's you know not necessarily going to happen this year, but it doesn't mean we're not going to keep raising the issues. And you know, I think if if our state wants control of people's bodies, as you know has happened, uh, you know, in other legislation, um, you know, I think we need to be talking about the discordance of that. And there are some policy solutions here. Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can put a cap on this reliance on fines and fees. The General Assembly could pass law that would cap the amount of revenue that these municipalities could bring in as a percentage of their total revenue, you know, and also looking at quotas, you know, that get put on law enforcement that really incentivize over policing of poor and minority communities. We need to get rid of those. Um, I think there's a lot more we need to be doing, but there are some real policy solutions here. And I think that's what I love it about GBPI. I don't think I know um, is that we're not just here complaining. We're here to offer some solutions too. So part of the solutions and also because and I will, you, you will talk to small cities and communities and, and their mayors and, and their folks will tell you, listen, we do rely a lot on some of these fees and fines. So perhaps if there was a way for for our community, our area to receive some type of other financial assistance, then we could do that. I mean, let's just be real clear. Some some people will tell you we rely on those those fees and fines. Yeah, well, I mean, you just think about municipal courts. There's no state funding for municipal courts. Um, that funding has to come from somewhere. But there's good work that can be done. You know, Ray's uh, report highlights a project that um, Chatham County is undertaking mm-hmm. to really look at their fines and fees. And they're only about 1.9% reliance, very low. You know, definitely not high and abusive. Um, but uh, good work can be done, you know, and I think that we need to set some state level policies to make sure that happens. How I love asking this question to y'all every year. How is the relationship with the folks under the gold dome? Uh, <laughs> you have friends there willing to advocate for some of these priorities here that you all feel are important. We do Rose. And listen, I mean, it's a whole new world under that dome this year. You know, I mean, everything has changed mm-hmm. uh, and every all leadership positions, you know, everybody sitting in those different leadership seats have changed so, you know, we're, we're we're here to work with the General Assembly, regardless of the letter that comes after their name towards these solutions and help and empower it. We're here to help empower them and give them the tools that they need to do their jobs. So absolutely, we've got friends and, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm really optimistic. We've seen some good things 
come out already. Well, and speaking of the Georgia legislative session, obviously, listen, they swore in 85 lawmakers on Monday who were of various backgrounds, Hispanic, Black, Asian, Middle Eastern descent. What are your thoughts about having this more diverse legislature now? Right. So isn't our AAPI group the largest in the country? I mean, it's beautiful and it reflects the state and it needs to have that needs to happen more. You know, we need to we need to figure out how to encourage more people to run for office that actually reflect all Georgians, because I think, you know, that's you spend time under the dome. That's the thing that happens. This switch happens where people forget what who people are, mm-hmm. you know, real Georgians out there are doing hard work in cities and rural communities all over the state. Um, and we're going to make sure that they remember all of those people. So we think about things like minimum wage or, you know, an opportunity wage. And, you know, we may have a surplus in the state, but surplus is a little bit of a misnomer, right? Because it's not, the state actually hasn't filled all its fiscal responsibilities, hasn't mm-hmm. fully funded um, education and healthcare. care. Uh, so there are a lot that that we can do with this historic amount of money. And I hope that our uh, legislators go into that dome thinking about some creative, proactive ways to take care of Georgians with those dollars. I want to end our conversation talking about education because here we go again with talking about how we fund public education in the state of Georgia. Listen, we can go back more than a decade to issues concerning, you know, the formula the KBE that that's used any optimism you have this year that that finally does get modified. Well, you know, there were Senate study committees that happened over the summer, you know, and some really brave outspoken Georgians, uh, including some of our staff showed up to those to make sure that those committee members heard from real Georgians about concerns. And yeah, I mean, um, We've already seen Representative Scott file a bill that looks a lot like an opportunity wait, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there is some appetite to address this. What it looks like, I don't know. You know, we're still so early, but uh, you know, Rose, I mean, we're one of six states that does not consider the tax base of the community that a school sits in. And our schools live or die mm-hmm. by those tax bases. And that is not fair to students. That is not equitable. And Our goal, our North Star GBPI, is an equitable budget. And folks, we should let them know that the QBE, which is the Quality Basic Education Formula, it is used to determine and how to allocate funds to school districts. And you're saying, look, that that whole, the equation that's used, you're saying that needs to be changed too? Yeah, I mean, we haven't changed it since the 80s. It is 2023. So I think it's time, Rose. (laughs) Uh, before we say goodbye, what else are you hoping? Of a, we talked about a lot here, but what else are you hoping lawmakers will really, really take a look at and possibly see some some movement this session? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I said, we ha- are at a historic moment with this surplus. Um, and I also think we need to be thinking about the largest change in our tax system coming next year with the flat tax. Um, I think we need to be thinking about some tax reform efforts Um, You know, the transparency that we talked about, I think the minimum wage is huge. Um, I think we're not going to get anywhere until we actually invest in the people and not the companies. I know we always talk about Medicaid expansion, but listen, Rose, that's the floor, not the ceiling at this Mm -hmm. point. We've got to do that. Um, And I think this pathways to coverage plan is just um, an overspend for a very little return, um, but also something small like removing the five-year waiting Medicaid waiting period for pr- pregnant women and children who are lawful residents in Georgia. We had some traction on that last year. I hope to see some more movement around that and maybe some more movement around, you know, aid-based need mm-hmm. in the state. Um, you know, it's early. Lots remains to be seen, but I'm hopeful. You know, I heard a piece this morning on Marketplace that talked about, listen, you know, inflation hits us, but inflation is really good for state revenues. You know, I think a lot of people listening to that this morning probably are like, really? Wow. That is, <laughs> that's a very interesting. It is. You know, and we have a huge, about a 25% gap between our revenues and our spending. We've got to We've got to shorten that gap or close that gap, you know, and and spend and invest in Georgia. And I mean, to the point of transportation, getting kids to schools, going mm-hmm. back to the education issue, right? I mean, only 20% um, of funding to for school transportation is coming from the state right now. 
kids can't get to school, they can't mm-hmm. learn, you know. Let's talk about you, Stacey. Uh, I promise this will be the last question. Uh, you served as president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Southeast for nine years. What was it about GBPI that you wanted to come over into this area? Uh, that's a great question, Rose. <laughs> that's what I do, Stacey. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, listen, I just finished a 25-year career at Planned Parenthood. Um, the last nine at Planned Parenthood Southeast and Planned Parenthood Southeast Advocates, where I was really honored to serve. Um, but it was time for me to make room for n- new leadership, new space, new energy. It was time for me to grow professionally. And listen, I'm from Warner Robins, Georgia. I'm a Georgia girl. And I care deeply about this state and I care deeply about the South. You know, I think these disparities are historical and racist and deep seated. And I want to see things change. And I think I I really like the change of working in a space that feels proactive and solution focused and not just having to play defense 24 seven. And the team at GBPI is brilliant. I couldn't be more honored to have landed in this space. All right, Stacey Fox, the president and CEO of Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. We've been talking about their top policy priorities with the new report that spotlights how Georgia fines and fees, practices, all that disproportionately hurt low-income communities. It's a big part of that report. We'll have a link to the report on our website. Stacey, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Almost one year in, huh? <laughs> Almost one year. Thanks, Rose, for the time today. Look forward to talking again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You know, the struggle to lose weight is real for so many of us, for so many people. And in some cases, it can be severe. Well, my next guest is using her own weight loss journey and experience as the inspiration behind what she calls Georgia's first body positive fitness center. Abby Griffith is the owner and founder of Clarity Fitness and Decatur. Abby, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Let's go back a little bit. Maybe I guess it's it's ten years. Uh, ten years ago, how would you, when you think back to that time? How would you assess how you felt about your body, your body image, your whole health and wellness, mental, physical, all of that? How would you assess it? Definitely. So, ten years ago, I was in school at University of Miami down in Florida, and I was having a really tough time. I was beating up on myself. I was really focused on the number on the scale, focused on appearance and aesthetics, and I unfortunately came down with a really intense eating disorder Mm -hmm. and really was working to navigate that. What does that mean? How does that impact my relationship with exercise and body? And definitely needed some support to get through that. Why do you think you were experiencing that? Do you know that? Was it something even prior to that when you were much younger? Can you take our listeners through how you got to that point in your life? For sure. So eating disorders come from a lot of different things I came to learn. They're genetic, they're social, they're impacts from family and friends and when I was so immersed in that fitness space, in that weight loss space, in the dieting space, unfortunately, it just kept adding fuel to the fire. Mm -hmm. And as you lose weight, you get endorsed by other people, like, congrats, you look so good. And just all of these messages that if that's actually damaging your mental health, which it was for me, those really shouldn't be the things that people are praising you for. Were you focusing on a certain look or a certain weight? Both. And one one may come and then the other one wasn't good enough and then we switch back to the other. So it was just a, a spiral of concerns about numbers and tracking and metrics. Did anyone tell you, you know, Abby, I'm, I'm concerned about how you're going about doing this? Eventually. We got there when, unfortunately, I was pretty close to being hospitalized and someone sat me down and was like, hey, I went through this. This looks a lot like what you're doing. And one of my close friends actually contacted one of my parents and she sent me into therapy and got things moving. (laughs) Your 
commitment to going to therapy and stick therapy and sticking with it was that an easy process for you it was funky it was yeah. um it was pretty good in the beginning and then um i went to school for industrial engineering so I like to go from point A to point Z and mm-hmm. tell me how to do it. Tell me what to what to think, how to jump, how, jump how high. And uh, when I was moving through that that process, I wanted it to go faster and I wanted to do it better. So there was some feedback to the therapist around that, and he ultimately helped me realize that that's not necessarily how mental health works. That's <laughs> no, a good there, reality there's check. There's a process <laughs> for sure. And it, did it start with acknowledging? Anything you that you had to acknowledge anything first before you were able to take that next step? Definitely. It, um, just learning sources from him. He talked to me about body positivity, and that was hugely helpful. Just learning that all shapes and sizes of bodies are amazing mm-hmm. and that the number on the scale is not equal to your worth or your health. That was a big change for me. So that change, is it possible for you to think back and and say, Rose, this was the day I woke up, or this was leading to the day I realized, you know what, I have to have a new approach to my health, and how I want to look, and how I approach weight issues. Definitely. I would say, I, and it doesn't work this way for everyone, and Mm -hmm. I would never advise this to be the the track that everyone takes, but for me, uh, the mantra, you are enough, finally hit home and I finally believed it and that's actually the the slogan at Clarity Fitness which is jumping ahead a little bit but no because that's gonna be next awesome so that that's what we hope to help other people internalize too and that was my light bulb moment so that light bulb moment also for Clarity Fitness how long did it come after you were able to acknowledge still continue with the therapy in that phase and then you thought now I'm going to become a business owner and start Clarity Fitness. <laughs> that took a few years. I was a personal trainer in Miami, so I got to got to dabble in, hey, this is the, the way that I want to help people navigate fitness, and does this resonate? And I came to see that it really did help a lot of people and was a, was a shift for a lot of the clients that I was working with that they enjoyed. So that was the seed that made me think, okay, it's time to do something bigger with this. If the audience <laughs> could see this smile on your face when you talk about <laughs> about clarity uh, fitness uh, okay so what is the what's the philosophy here Definitely. So Clarity Fitness is Georgia's first weight-inclusive wellness center. We are eating disorder-informed, so we can work a lot with treatment providers or people that are moving through their own recovery to be able to be a safe space to explore movement, exercise, body image, and self-worth. So is it a self-assessment for each person? It's going to be different when folks come to you? It depends. So we we like to compare ourselves to something like an Equinox. We're a a high-end fitness studio. We have open gym access and group exercise and personal training. And the personal training piece is really the piece that I'm the most proud of. I love all of our instructors, all of our team, but the personal training is where we can do that one-on-one support of people who are struggling. And that's when we can really sit down with them and talk through what's going on, talk through ways to get providers involved so we're working as a team and that helps a lot is so this is not is this a goal of weight loss or just working on your body because you call this Georgia's first body positive fitness center definitely so we actually don't want to focus on weight loss at all which definitely can be a shift for people we want to meet them where they're at so if people have focuses on weight loss, then obviously we don't want them to feel alienated by that, but we want to talk to them about why and understand maybe it's a health concern, maybe it's uh, some fear of body image or judgment. We could actually work on that piece instead of the weight loss because you can be incredibly healthy, incredibly gorgeous, incredibly handsome, incredibly incredible at all shapes and sizes. That's what we want people to start to see. And I think also because I've had this conversation with folks who say, I would love to go to the gym. I'm a little intimidated because because everybody looks great. And I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> but there is some an, an, an intimidation factor For because sure. there's somebody who was, quote, buff over here and someone who's 
quote slim and looking fine or whatever and that's intimidating to folks and so they they don't go because they, they figure folks are looking at them as well and that's for some people that's a major issue yeah and we, understandable for sure it's it's so common and I think people we call it gym intimidation at Clarity so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize how common that is it's not something that's wrong with them and if gyms aren't everyone's cup of tea that's awesome there are virtual options we have virtual options but whether or not it's through us walking Walking outside or just spending time dancing. It's movement is movement. So figuring out, taking the ownership of what works for you is a huge part of that journey and a huge part of just valuing yourself, treating yourself with respect. For someone listening says, okay, I hear Abby, but really, is this going to be different than, I'm not going to mention the gym name, so I'll get an email, (laughs) than that gym or that fitness? Is that really different? And, you know, how welcoming are you going to be to someone like me you know if they if they've never even done this but they want to somehow start the approach For why sure. are you so different it's, yeah, I, I hear that concern. And unfortunately, I think the, the state of the fitness industry uh, isn't isn't holding up its side of the bargain. And it makes those questions more prevalent. What do you mean? Not holding up their end of the bargain? I, it's really important that we start to see people as more than the number on the scale and see health as more than the shape and size of someone's body. And that is the main metric that people use to unfortunately sell things to people. So you mm-hmm. go to said unnamed gym and they put you on a scale and add things to your laundry list of things that you already think are wrong with you. And they take that little thing they put on the side. Uh (laughs) Calibers and the BMI and blah. So we we want to to shift that conversation. We don't have any scales in the entire facility. We don't do consultations around BMI or body checking at all. And we actually uh, created a program with a non-diet dietitian, which is essentially a dietitian that looks at your relationship with food instead of mm-hmm. here's a list of things you can't eat, here's thing all the things that you can't, and helped create a food system for people not a program but I have a friend a very dear friend I won't say dear friend's name but every other week it's I've got this new approach and I read mm-hmm. about this and yeah. I'm going to eat this and I'm going to eat that and then as a loving friend I say you know can you you need to find something that works for you because for sure. every other week it's changing and when we decide we want to go out we can't go here to eat because this is on the list or that's on the list so you're really focusing on Taking each person, it's almost like a, a, a customized, like when you take your car and you got to get this preventive maintenance. Yeah. <laughs> you, you all are focusing on, let's look at this individual and then let's sort of assess what you need to do. And then there's a process. For sure. Now let's talk about being a business owner. Yes. <laughs> what have you learned? Oh, goodness. <laughs> so much. We opened uh, exactly 10 weeks before we got shut down for COVID. So that's a big lesson in a lot of things. We figured out how to switch everything to virtual over the course of less than a month. We figured out how to set up systems and processes that can work for different people in different situations and adapt and evolve and flow well. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> I have a listener who says, uh, is there an age requirement to join the fit- the center? 14 and up for membership. And then uh, we can do virtual training with any any age, pretty much. There are some ages uh, where personal training is a little too young. We want to make sure that we're mm-hmm. not training people before they've started their puberty and maturing and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. But um, yeah, 14. And how often do you share your own journey with younger folks? I do uh, do my best to get out there as much as possible. I've spoken for different high schools and middle schools and colleges on body image. I've sat on the board for Education and Insight on Eating Disorders or mm-hmm. Eden, and they do a lot of different programs and walks and fundraisers where I had the opportunity to share. So I, I hope that my story impacts people and absolutely love sharing. And Abby, we are in a space where, particularly with social media, and y'all can send emails because I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> and the pressures that come along with that, particularly mm-hmm. for our, our our young girls with with all the stuff that's on social media. And you should look like this. And the influencers say you can look like me. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure out there. And then the, the mental toll that it has, especially on 
our young girls. Absolutely. There are a lot of studies. Girls, all gendered individuals are having body image struggles and wanting to be smaller as young as three years old. Eating disorders are one in 10 right now. It's it's a really serious issue. And if we keep feeding the messages of look like this, and then a few years later, the trends change and shift mm-hmm. and you need to look like something else or someone else that's that's a, a never-ending ball that you're chasing and it's it's really important we shift those conversations do you also have to shift for your your employees your trainers that they make sure that they're that they're having the same philosophy that you have because they're the ones that also train you train too right i do yep i'm a personal trainer and verbiage is huge for us so we we drill that in and onboarding and have lots of educational opportunities webinars people go to always learning Abby Griffith is the owner and founder of Clarity Fitness in Decatur, George's first, quote, body positive fitness center. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been an honor and super grateful. I'm going to come over there and check you out. Yay. <laughs> now. That is it for this edition of Closer Look. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer alongside producers LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Marinker. As I always say, reminder, let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like. Now... As we're wrapping up the show, we're going to pop the metaphorical bubbly for our anniversary. Yes, on this day in 2015, Closer Look and City Lights debuted right here on WABE. I've been beyond lucky and, and actually grateful to work alongside some very talented folks. All the features, the special series, and of course the conversations are geared towards you, the community, like I just, the one I just had with Abby. Now, I do have my favorite interviews, of course, with a variety of people from, you know, Pam Greer, Kim Fields, Erica Alexander, Vicki Lawrence, Goody Mob, of course, T.I., Wu-Tang, Dionne Warwick, Peebo Bryson, and of course... Chaka, 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 That's right, Shaka Khan, my all-time favorite interview. And also, yeah, federal, state, and local leaders. (laughs) The kids, of course, from Forest Fridays. The young entrepreneurs from Brown Boys Lemonade. But most of all, I've enjoyed sharing the mic with you. So thank you to the many producers, reporters. Come on, Shaka. Digital support staff who've all made it happy. Special shout-out to Dennis O'Hara. Jim Burris, Martha Dalton, they were right there with us when we started. David Bearswain, John Haas, so many. Candace Wheeler, so many. And here's to many, many more. That's right, Shaka. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott and grateful. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.